Section 38 of The Glories of Ireland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Glories of Ireland, edited by Joseph Dunn and P. J. Lennox. Irish Writers of English, Part 2, by P. J. Lennox, B. A. Lit. D. 18th century. We have now fairly crossed the border of the 18th century, and as we met Usher early in the 17th, so we are here confronted with the colossal intellect and impressive personality of Swift, one of the greatest, most peculiar, and most original geniuses to be found in the whole domain of English literature. Jonathan Swift, 1667 to 1745, born in Dublin, was educated at Trinity College, where he succeeded in graduating only by special favor. After some years spent in the household of Sir William Temple in England, he entered the ministry of the Irish Church. During the early years of the century he spent much time in London, and took an active part in bringing about that political revolution which seated the Tories firmly in power during the last four years of the reign of Queen Anne. His services in that connection on the Examiner newspaper were so great that it would be difficult to dispute the assertion, which has been made, that he was one of the mightiest journalists that ever wielded a pen. He also stood loyally by his party in his great pamphlets, The Conduct of the Allies, 1711, The Barrier Treaty, 1712, and The Public Spirit of the Whigs, 1714. When the time came for his reward, he received not, as he had hoped, an English bishopric, but the deanery of St. Patrick's in Dublin. On resuming his residence in Ireland, he was at first very unpopular, but his patriotic spirit, as shown in the Drapier Letters, 1723 to 1724, written in connection with a coinage scheme known as Wood's Halfpence, not only caused the withdrawal of the obnoxious project, but also made Swift the idol of all classes of his countrymen. In many others of his writings he showed that pro-Irish leaning which caused Grattan to invoke his spirit along with that of Molneux on the occasion already referred to. Nothing more mordant than the irony contained in his modest proposal has ever been penned. In his plea for native manufactures he struck a keynote that has vibrated down the ages when he advised Irishmen to burn everything English except coal. Swift's greater works are The Battle of the Books, his contribution to the controversy concerning the relative merits of the ancients and the moderns, The Tale of a Tub, in which he attacked the three leading forms of Christianity, and above all Gulliver's Travels. In this last work he let loose the full flood of his merciless satire and lashed the folly and vices of mankind in the most unsparing way. He also wrote verses which are highly characteristic, and some of them not without considerable merit. His life was unhappy, and for the last five years of it he was to all intents and purposes insane. His relations with Stella, Hester Johnson, and Vanessa, Esther Van Roeming, have never been quite satisfactorily explained. The weight of evidence would seem to show that he was secretly married to Stella, but that they never lived together as husband and wife. Many novels and plays have been written round those entanglements. He lies buried in his own cathedral, St. Patrick's, Dublin, and beside him lies Stella. Over his tomb there is an epitaph in Latin, written by himself, in which, after speaking of the seva indignatio which tore his heart, he bids the wayfarer to go and imitate, if he can, the energetic defender of his native land. Contemporary with the dean there was another Anglo-Irishman, who fills a large space in the history of English literature, and of whom his countrymen are justly proud. Sir Richard Steele, 1672-1729, who was born in Dublin and educated at the Charterhouse in London, and afterwards at Oxford, started the Tatler in 1709, and thereby popularized, though he did not exactly originate, the periodical essay. Aided by his friend Addison, he carried the work to perfection in The Spectator, 1711-1712, and The Guardian, 1713. Since then, these essays have enlightened and amused each succeeding generation. Of the two, Addison's is the greater name, but Steele was the more innovating spirit, for it is to him, and not to Addison, that the conception and initiation of the plan of the celebrated papers is due. 
steele had had a predecessor in defoe whose review had been in existence since seventeen o four but the more airy graces which characterized the tattler and the spectator gave the lucubrations of isaac bickerstaff and of mr spectator a greater hold on the public than defoe's paper was ever able to establish steele was responsible for many more periodicals such as the englishman the lover the reader town talk the tea-table chit-chat the plebeian and the theatre most of which had a rather ephemeral existence among his other services to literature he helped to purify the stage of some of its grossness and he became the founder of that sentimental comedy which in the days of the early georges took the place of the immoral comedy of the restoration period when in johnson's famous phrase intrigue was plot obscenity was wit steele's four comedies are the funeral or grief a la mode seventeen o one the lying lover seventeen o three the tender husband seventeen o five and the conscious lovers seventeen twenty two although he held various lucrative offices steele was never really prosperous and was frequently in debt like most of the contemporary englishmen with whom his lot was thrown he was rather addicted to the bottle but on the whole it may fairly be advanced that unnecessary stress has been laid on these aspects of his life by macaulay thackeray and others after a chequered career he died near carmarthen in wales on september first seventeen twenty nine member of a family and bearer of a name destined to secure immense fame in later irish history thomas parnell sixteen seventy nine to seventeen eighteen was born in dublin and educated at trinity college entering the ministry in seventeen hundred he was rapidly promoted to be archdeacon of clower and some years later he was made rector of finglas an accomplished scholar and a delightful companion he was one of the original members of the famous scribblerus club and wrote or helped to write several of its papers he contributed to the spectator and the guardian and he rendered sterling assistance to pope in the translation of homer as will be inferred he spent much of his time in england and on one of his journeys to ireland he died in his thirty-ninth year at chester where he was buried he wrote a great deal of verse songs hymns epistles eclogues translations tales and occasional trifles but three poems a hymn to contentment which is fanciful and melodious a night piece on death in which inquisitorial research seems to have found the first faint dawn of romanticism and the hermit which has not been inaptly styled the apex and chef d'oeuvre of augustan poetry in england constitute his chief claim to present remembrance francis hutcheson sixteen ninety four to seventeen forty six the son of a presbyterian minister was born at armagh and studied at glasgow university he opened in dublin a private academy which succeeded beyond expectation the publication of his inquiry into the original of our ideas of beauty and virtue seventeen twenty and his essay on the nature and conduct of the passions seventeen twenty eight brought him great fame and in seventeen twenty nine he was elected to the professorship of moral philosophy in the university of glasgow others of his works are a treatise on logic and a system of moral philosophy the latter not published till seventeen fifty five nine years after his death hutcheson fills a large space in the history of philosophy both as a metaphysician and as a moralist he is in some respects a pioneer of the scotch school and of common-sense philosophy he greatly developed the doctrine of moral sense a term first used by the third earl of shaftesbury indeed much of his whole moral system may be traced to shaftesbury hutcheson's influence was widely felt it is plainly perceptible in hume adam smith and reed he was greater as a speaker even than as a writer and his lectures evoked much enthusiasm george berkeley sixteen eighty five to seventeen fifty three bishop of cloyne was born at dysart castle near thomastown county kilkenny and was educated first at kilkenny school and afterwards at trinity college dublin having taken anglican orders he visited london where he wrote nine papers for the guardian and was admitted to the companionship and friendship of the leading literary men of the age swift pope addison steele and arbuthnot this connection proved of great assistance to him for pope not only celebrated him as possessing every virtue under heaven but also recommended him to the duke of grafton lord lieutenant of ireland who appointed him his chaplain and subsequently obtained for him the deanery of derry 
in furtherance of a great scheme for converting the savage americans to christianity berkeley and some friends armed with a royal charter came to this country landing at newport in rhode island in january seventeen twenty nine all went well for a while berkeley bought a farm and built a house but when the hard-hearted prime minister refused to forward the twenty thousand pounds which had been promised the project came to an end and berkeley returned to london in february seventeen thirty two in seventeen thirty four he was appointed bishop of cloyne and later refused the see of clower though its income was fully double that of his own diocese in seventeen fifty two he resigned his bishopric and settled at oxford where he died in seventeen fifty three berkeley's works are very numerous his essay towards a new theory of vision seventeen o nine which was long regarded in the light of a philosophical romance in reality contains speculations which have been incorporated in modern scientific optics in his three dialogues between hylas and philonius seventeen thirteen he sets forth his famous demonstration of the immateriality of the external world of the spiritual nature of the soul and of the all-ruling and direct providence of god his tenets on immateriality have always been rejected by common-sense philosophers but it should be remembered that the whole work was written at a time when the english-speaking world was disturbed by the theories of skeptics and deists whose doctrines the pious divine sought as best he could to confute in seventeen thirty two appeared his alciferon or the minute philosopher in which dialogue-wise he presents nature from a religious point of view and in particular gives many pleasing pictures of american scenery and life these dialogues have frequently been compared to the dialogues of plato to berkeley's credit be it said that while he ruled in cloyne he devoted much thought to the amelioration of conditions in his native land many acute suggestions in that direction are found in the queerest seventeen thirty five to seventeen thirty seven by some extraordinary ratiocinative process he convinced himself that tar water was a panacea for human ills and in seventeen forty four he set forth his views on that subject in the tract called cirrus and returned to the charge in seventeen fifty two in his further thoughts on tar water whatever may be thought of the value of berkeley's philosophical or practical speculations there is only one opinion of his style it is distinguished by lucidity ease and charm it has the saving grace of humor and it is shot through with imagination taken all in all this eighteenth-century bishop is a notable figure in literary annals charles macklin circa sixteen ninety seven to seventeen ninety seven whose real name was mclaughlin was a westmeath man who took to the stage in early life and remained on the boards with considerable and undiminished reputation for some seventy years not retiring until seventeen eighty nine when he was at least ninety-two years old to him we are indebted for what is now the accepted presentation of the character of shylock in the merchant of venice he wrote a tragedy and many comedies and farces those by which he is now best remembered are the farce love a la mode seventeen sixty and his masterpiece the farcical comedy the man of the world seventeen sixty four in sir pertinax mac sycophant macklin has given us one of the traditional burlesque characters of the english stage thomas armory sixteen ninety one to seventeen eighty eight if not born in ireland was at least of irish descent and was educated in dublin he is known in literature for two books the first with the very mixed title of memoirs containing the lives of several ladies of great britain a history of antiquities observations on the christian religion was published in seventeen fifty five and the second the life of john bungle esq came out in two volumes in seventeen fifty six to seventeen sixty six it appears to have been the author's aim in both works to give us a hotchpotch in which he discourses de omnibus rebus et quibustam ailis we have dissertations on the cause of earthquakes and of muscular motion on the athanasian creed on fluxions on phlogiston on the physical cause of the deluge on irish literature on the origin of language on the evidences for christianity and on all other sorts of unrelated topics hazlitt thought the soul of rabelais had passed into armory while a more recent critic can see in his long-winded discussions naught but the light-headed ramblings of delirium 
if we try to read john buncle consecutively the result is boredom but if we open the book at random we are pretty sure to be interested and even sometimes agreeably entertained the bizarre figure of lawrence stern seventeen thirteen to seventeen sixty eight next claims our attention the son of a captain in the british army he was born at clonmel county tipperary of him almost more than any of the other writers so far dealt with it may be said that he was irish only by the accident of birth his parents were english on both sides and practically the whole life of their son was spent out of ireland he was sent to school at halifax in yorkshire and thence went on to cambridge university where he graduated in due season taking anglican orders in seventeen thirty eight he was immediately appointed to the benefice of sutton in the forest near york and on his marriage in seventeen forty one with elizabeth lumley he received the additional living of stillington he was also given sundry prebendal and other appointments in connection with the chapter of the archdiocese of york he spent nearly twenty years in the discharge of his not very onerous duties and in reading painting shooting and fiddling without showing the least sign of any literary leanings then suddenly in seventeen sixty he took the world by storm with the first two volumes of tristram shandy he at once became the lion of the hour was feted and dined to his heart's content and had his nostrils tickled with the daily incense of praise from his numerous worshippers he repeated the experiment with equal success in the following year with two more volumes of tristram and so at intervals until seventeen sixty seven when he published the ninth and last volume of this most peculiar story in seventeen sixty eight he brought out a sentimental journey and within three weeks he died in his lodgings in london his other publications include sermons and letters tristram shandy is unique in english literature it stands sui generis for all time there is scarcely any consecutive narrative and what there is is used merely as a peg on which to hang endless digressions but while there are many faults of taste and morals there are also genuine humour and pathos and without walter shandy dr slop the widow wadman yorick uncle toby and corporal trim english literature would certainly be very much the poorer hugh kelly seventeen thirty nine to seventeen seventy seven born in dublin was the son of a publican and himself became a staymaker a trade from which he developed through the successive stages of attorney's clerk newspaper writer theatrical critic and essayist into a novelist and playwright his novel memoirs of a magdalen seventeen sixty seven was translated into french his first comedy a sentimental one entitled false delicacy seventeen sixty eight achieved a remarkable success on the stage and was even a greater success in book form ten thousand copies being sold in a year so that its author was raised from poverty to comparative affluence in addition it gave him a european reputation for it was translated into german french and portuguese strange to say his later comedies a word to the wise a school for wives and the man of reason were practically failures and the same is true of his tragedy clementina Kelly ultimately withdrew from stage work and for the last three years of his life practiced as a barrister without, however, achieving much distinction in his new profession. Charles Coffey, death, 1745, an Irishman, was the author of several farces, operas, ballad operas, ballad farces, and farcical operas, the best known of which was The Devil to Pay or The Wives Metamorphosed, 1731. Henry Brook, 1703 to 1783 a county caven man and the son of a clergyman was educated at trinity college dublin and afterwards studied law in london becoming guardian to his cousin a girl of twelve he put her to school for two years and then secretly married her of his large family of twenty-two children three of whom were born before their mother was eighteen years old but one survived him appointed by lord chesterfield barrack master at mullingar brooke afterwards settled in county kildare it was there that he wrote his celebrated work the fool of quality or the history of the earl of moreland five volumes seventeen sixty six to seventeen seventy which won the commendations of men so widely different as john wesley and charles kingsley it is indeed a remarkable book combining as it does many of the characteristics of stern mackenzie barrow and george meredith it is not very well known nowadays but it will always bear and will well repay perusal 
Brooke also wrote a poem on Universal Beauty, 1735, and the tragedies Gustavus Vasa, 1739, the production of which was forbidden in London, but which was afterwards staged in Dublin as The Patriot, and The Earl of Essex, 1749, which was played both in London and in Dublin, and has been made famous by the parody of one line in it by Samuel Johnson. Another novel, Juliet Grenville, or The History of the Human Heart, published in 1774, was not nearly up to the standard of The Fool of Quality. Brooke was a busy literary man. He made a translation of part of Tasso, drafted plans for a history of Ireland, projected a series of old Irish tales, wrote one fragment in a style very like that subsequently adopted by Macpherson in his Ossian, and for a while was editor of the Freeman's Journal. In the beginning, Brooke was violently anti-Catholic, but, as time progressed, he became more liberal-minded, and advocated the relaxation of the penal laws and a more humane treatment of his Catholic fellow-countrymen. Like Swift and Steele, he fell into a state of mental debility for some years before his death. His daughter, Charlotte Brooke, 1740-1793, deserves mention as a pioneer of the Irish literary revival, for she devoted herself to the saving of the stores of Irish literature which in her time were rapidly disappearing. One of the fruits of her labors was The Relics of Irish Poetry, published in 1789. She also wrote Emma, or The Foundling of the Wood, a novel, and Belisarius, a tragedy. Charles Johnstone, circa 1719 to 1800, a county limerick man, was educated in Dublin and called to the English bar, but owing to deafness was more successful as a chamber counsel than as a pleader. Emigrating to India in 1782, he became joint proprietor of a newspaper in Calcutta, and there he died. He wrote several satirical romances, such as Chrysal, or The Adventures of a Guinea, The Reverie, or A Flight to the Paradise of Fools, and The History of Arsace, Prince of Betlis. Of these, the first was the best. Samuel Johnson, who read it in manuscript, advised its publication, and his opinion was vindicated, for it proved a huge success. Sir Walter Scott afterwards said that the author of Chrysal deserved to rank as a prose juvenile. Johnstone also wrote The Pilgrim, or A Picture of Life, and a picaresque novel, The History of John Juniper Esquire, alias Juniper Jack. Arthur Murphy, 1727-1805, to 1805, born at Clunquin County, Roscommon, was educated at St. Omer. At first an actor, he afterwards studied law and was called to the English Bar in 1762. He made a translation of Tacitus, and wrote several farces and comedies, among which may be mentioned The Apprentice, The Spouter, The Upholsterer, The Way to Keep Him, and All in the Wrong. He also wrote three tragedies, namely The Orphan of China, The Grecian Daughter, and Arminius. For the last named, which was produced in 1798, and which had a strongly political cast, he received a pension of two hundred pounds a year. His plays long held the stage. Oliver Goldsmith, 1728 to 1774, essayist, poet, novelist, playwright, historian, biographer, and editor, was a many-sided genius who, as Johnson said in his epitaph, left scarcely any kind of writing untouched, and touched none that he did not adorn. Born, probably, in County Longford, the son of a poor clergyman, he was educated at various country schools until, in 1744, he secured a sizarship in Trinity College, Dublin. There he had a somewhat stormy career, but eventually took his degree in 1749. He then lounged at home for a while in his widowed mother's cottage at Ballymahon, until he was persuaded to take orders, but spoiled his already sufficiently poor chances of ordination by appearing before the Bishop of Elphin in scarlet breeches. After other adventures in search of a profession, he went to Edinburgh in 1752 to study medicine, and two years later transferred himself to Leyden for the same purpose. It was from Leyden that, with one guinea in his pocket, one shirt on his person, and a flute in his hand, he started on his celebrated walking tour of Europe, during which he gained those impressions which he afterwards was to embody in some of his greater works. In 1756 he arrived in England, where for three years he had very varied experiences, as a strolling player, an apothecary's journeyman, a practicing physician, a reader for the press, an usher in an academy, and a hack writer. In 1759 he published anonymously his Inquiry into the Present State of Polite Learning in Europe, 
which was well received and helped him to other literary work. The Bee, a volume of essays and verses, appeared in the same year. He was made editor of the Ladies' Magazine, he published Memoirs of Voltaire, 1761, A History of Mecklenburg, 1762, and A Life of Richard Nash, 1762. In 1762 also he brought out his Citizen of the World, a collection of essays which takes an extremely high rank. In 1764 his poem, The Traveller, or A Prospect of Society, made its appearance, and in 1766 he gave to the world his famous novel, The Vicar of Wakefield. His reputation as a writer was now established, he was received into Johnson's circle, and was made a member of the literary club. Reynolds and Burke were proud to call him a friend. In 1768 he had his comedy, The Good-Natured Man, produced at Covent Garden Theatre, where it achieved a fair measure of success and brought him in four hundred pounds. In 1770 he repeated his triumph as a poet with The Deserted Village. He wrote a history of animated nature, a history of England, and a history of Rome, all compilations couched in that easy style of which he was master. He also wrote A Life of Parnell and A Life of Bolingbroke. Finally, in 1773, his great comedy, She Stoops to Conquer, was staged at Covent Garden, and met with wonderful success. A little more than a year later, Goldsmith died of a nervous fever, the result of overwork and anxiety, and was buried in the burial ground of the Temple Church. His unfinished poem, Retaliation, a series of epigrams in epitaph form, on some of his distinguished literary and artistic friends, was issued a few days after his death, and added greatly to his reputation as a wit and humorist, a reputation which was still further enhanced when, in 1776, the haunch of venison made its appearance. In the latter year a monument, with a medallion and Johnson's celebrated Latin epitaph attached, was erected to his memory in Westminster Abbey. Goldsmith's renown, great in his own day, has never since diminished. His essays, his novel, and his poems are still read with avidity and pleasure. His comedy is still acted. It is his statue that stands along with Burke's at the entrance gate to Trinity College, Dublin, the alma mater seeking to commemorate in a striking manner two of her most distinguished sons by placing their effigies thus in the forefront of her possessions and in full view of all the world. Personally, Goldsmith was a very amiable and good-hearted man, dear to his own circle and dear to that Mr. Posterity to whom he once addressed a humorous dedication. He had his faults, it is true, but they are hidden amid his many perfections. Everyone will be disposed to agree with what Johnson wrote of him. Let not his frailties be remembered. He was a very great man. Edmund Burke, 1729-1797, to born in Dublin, the son of a Protestant father and a Catholic mother whose name was Nagel, was educated first at a Quaker school in Ballator, County Kildare, and afterwards at Trinity College, Dublin. He became a law student in London, but he did not eventually adopt the law as a profession. He brought out in 1756 a Vindication of Natural Society, in which he so skillfully imitated the style and the paradoxical reasoning of Bolingbroke that many were deceived into the belief that Vindication was a posthumously published production of the Viscount's pen. In the following year, Burke published in his own name a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, which attracted widespread attention was translated into German and French, and brought its author into touch with all the leading literary men of London. He was instrumental with Dodsley, the publisher, in starting the annual register in 1759, and for close on thirty years he continued to supply it with the survey of events. He entered public life in 1760 by accompanying single-speech Hamilton to Dublin, when the latter was appointed chief secretary for Ireland. In 1765 he was made private secretary to the Prime Minister, the Marquis of Rockingham, and, as member for Wendover, entered Parliament, where he speedily made a name for himself. During Lord North's long tenure of office, 1770-1782, Burke was one of the minority and opposed the splendid force of his genius to the corruption, extravagance, and maladministration of the government. To this period belong, in addition to lesser works, his great speeches, on American Taxation, 1774, and On Conciliation with America, 1775, as well as his spirited letter to the Sheriffs of Bristol, 1777. He had been elected Member of Parliament for Bristol in 1774, but he lost his seat in 1780 because he had advocated the relaxation of the restrictions on the trade of Ireland with Great Britain and of the penal laws against Catholics. 
in the second administration of rockingham seventeen eighty two and in that of portland seventeen eighty three he was paymaster of the forces a position which he lost on the downfall of the whigs in the latter year and he never again held public office his speech on the impeachment of Warren Hastings in 1788 is universally and justly ranked as a masterpiece of eloquence. When the French Revolution broke out, he opposed it with might and main. His Reflections on the French Revolution, 1790, had an enormous circulation and reached an eleventh edition inside of a year, was read all over the continent as well as in the British Isles, and helped materially not only to keep England steady in the crisis, but also to incite the other powers to continue their resistance to French aggression. He continued his campaign in Thoughts on French Affairs and Letters on a Regicide Peace. He was given two pensions in 1794 and would have been raised to the peerage as Lord Beaconsfield, had not the succession to the title been cut off by the premature death of his only son. He himself died in 1797 and was buried at Beaconsfield, where, as far back as 1768, he had purchased a small estate. As an orator and a deep political thinker, Burke holds a foremost place among those of all time who distinguished themselves in the British Parliament. His keen intellect, his powerful imagination, his sympathy with the fallen, the downtrodden, and the oppressed, and his matchless power of utterance of the thoughts that were in him have made an impression that can never be effaced. His wise and statesmanlike views on questions affecting the colonies ought to endear him to all Americans, although, if his counsels had been hearkened to, it is probable that the separation from the mother country would not have occurred as soon as it did. For his native land he used his best endeavors when and how he could, and although, as her defender, he was faced by obloquy, as well as by the loss of that parliamentary position which was as dear to him as the breath of his nostrils, he did not flinch or shrink from supporting her material and spiritual interests in his own generous, manly, whole-hearted way. Trinity College, Dublin, has done well in placing his statue at her outer gates as representing the greatest Irishman of his generation. A political associate of Burke's for many years was Richard Brinsley Sheridan, 1751-1816, of County Cavan descent. Sheridan was born in Dublin, and was educated partly in his native city and partly at Harrow, and the remainder of his life was spent in England. He was distinguished first as a playwright and afterwards as a parliamentary orator. In 1775, his comedy, The Rivals, was produced at Covent Garden Theatre, his farce, St. Patrick's Day, or The Scheming Lieutenant, and his comic opera, The Duenna, were staged in the same year. His greatest comedy, The School for Scandal, was acted at Drury Lane Theatre in 1777, and it was followed in 1779 by The Critic. His last dramatic composition was the tragedy Pizarro, produced in 1799. Elected to Parliament in 1780, Sheridan was made Under-Secretary for Foreign Affairs in the Rockingham Administration of 1782, and in 1783 he was Secretary to the Treasury in the Coalition Ministry. He sprang into repute as a brilliant orator during the impeachment of Warren Hastings, 1787 to 1794. His speech on the Begums of Oud was one of the greatest ever delivered within the walls of the British Parliament. In 1806, on the return of the Whigs to power, he was appointed Treasurer in the Navy. In 1812, his long parliamentary career came to a close when he was defeated for the borough of Westminster. He died in 1816 and was honored with a magnificent funeral in Westminster Abbey. To give an idea as to how Sheridan's oratorical powers impressed his contemporaries, it is perhaps enough to repeat what Burke said of his second speech against Warren Hastings, namely, that it was, the most astonishing effort of eloquence, argument, and wit united of which there is any record or tradition. And to add that, when, after three hours of impassioned pleading, he brought his first speech against Hastings to an end, the effect produced was so great that it was agreed to adjourn the House immediately and defer the final decision until the members should be in a less excited mood. As a dramatist, Sheridan is second in popularity to Shakespeare alone. The School for Scandal and The Rivals are as fresh and as eagerly welcomed today as they were a hundred and forty years ago. Like Burke, he was true to the land of his birth and his oppressed Catholic fellow countrymen. Almost his last words in the House of Commons were these, Be just to Ireland. I will never give my vote to any administration that opposes the question of Catholic emancipation. Sheridan belonged to a family that was exceptionally distinguished in English literature. Among those who preceded him as literateurs were his grandfather, the Reverend Thomas Sheridan, D.D., his father, Thomas Sheridan, and his mother, Frances Sheridan. 
Reverend Dr. Sheridan, 1684 to 1738, the friend and confidant of Dean Swift, kept a fashionable school in Dublin, edited the satires of Perseus in 1728, wrote a treatise on the art of punning, and figures largely in Swift's correspondence. Thomas Sheridan, 1721 to 1788, was at first an actor of considerable reputation, both in Dublin and in London, was next a teacher of elocution, and finally came forward with an improved system of education in which oratory was to have a conspicuous part. In this connection, he published an elaborate plan of education in 1769, but his ideas, some of which are in accord with modern practice, were not taken up. He also compiled a pronouncing dictionary of the English language with a prosodic grammar, and in 1784 published An Entertaining Life of Swift. Francis Sheridan, 1724 to 1766, wife of Thomas and mother of Richard Brinsley, who as Francis Chamberlain had been known as a poetess, wrote after her marriage two plays, The Discovery and The Droop, and two novels, The Memoirs of Miss Sidney Bidolph, which was a great success and was translated by the Abbe Prevost into French, and The History of Nourjahad, an Oriental Tale. In 1775 the singular spectacle was presented of the son's play running at Covent Garden while the mother's was being acted at Drury Lane. Among Sheridan's descendants who earned a niche in the temple of literary fame were his granddaughters, the Countess of Dufferin, 1807 to 1867, and the Honorable Mrs. Norton, afterwards Lady Sterling Maxwell, 1808 to 1877, and his great-grandson, the first Marquis of Dufferin and Ava, 1826 to 1902. Lady Dufferin's Lament of the Irish Immigrant, I'm sitting on the style, Mary, has moved the hearts and brought tears to the eyes of countless thousands since it was published more than fifty years ago. Sir Philip Francis, 1740 to 1880, born in Dublin, was the son of a clergyman of like name, who attained some literary eminence as the translator of Horace and as a political writer. After filling various important government positions, Philip Francis, the son, was in 1773 made a member of the Council of Bengal, where his relations with the Governor-General, Warren Hastings, were of an extremely strained character, amounting at times almost to a public scandal. He returned to England in 1781, entered Parliament, made a name as a speaker, took part in the impeachment of Hastings, and composed numerous political pamphlets. He is generally supposed to have been the writer of the celebrated Letters of Junius, which appeared at intervals in the public advertiser between January 21, 1769 and January 21, 1772. These letters are distinguished for their polished style, their power of invective, their galling sarcasm, their knowledge of state secrets, and their unparalleled boldness. Every prominent man connected with the government was attacked. Even the king himself was not spared. As revised by their pseudonymous writer in a reprint made in 1772, they number 70. A later edition, in 1812, contained 113 more. Their authorship has been the subject of much controversy, nor is the question yet finally settled. In his essay on Warren Hastings, written in 1841, Macaulay went to considerable trouble to prove, by the cumulative method, that Francis was the writer, and since then that opinion has been generally, but not universally, maintained. Isaac Bickerstaff, circa 1735 to circa 1812, was an Irishman whose name, strange to say, had no connection with the nom de guerre of the same style under which Swift had masqueraded in his outrageously satirical acts on Partridge the Almanac Maker, or with the more celebratory imaginary Isaac Bickerstaff, under cover of whose personality Steele conducted the tattler. The real Bickerstaff was a prolific playwright. His best-known pieces are The Sultan, The Maid of the Mill, Lionel and Carissa, and Love in a Village. In the last mentioned occurs the famous song beginning, We All Love a Pretty Girl Under the Rose. William Drennan, 1754-1820, who has been called the Tertius of the United Irishmen, was the son of a Presbyterian clergyman, was born in Belfast, and was educated at Glasgow and Edinburgh universities, taking a medical degree from the latter. He practiced his profession in the north of Ireland. When the Irish volunteers were established, Drennan entered heart and soul into the movement. Removing to Dublin in 1789, he associated with Tone and other revolutionary spirits, and became one of the founders of the Society of United Irishmen, the first statement of whose objects was the product of his pen. 
His letters of Oriana helped materially to enlist the men of Ulster in the ranks of the society. He also wrote a series of stirring lyrics which, voicing as they did the general sentiment in Ireland at the time, became extremely popular and had a widespread effect. These were afterwards, 1815, collected under the title of Fugitive Pieces. All his political hopes being blasted with the failure of the rebellion of 1798 and of Emmett's insurrection in 1803, Drennan returned in 1807 to Belfast, and there founded the Belfast Magazine. The Wake of William Orr, a series of noble and affecting stanzas commemorating the judicial murder of a young Presbyterian Irish patriot in 1798, is one of his best-known pieces. He also celebrated the ill-fated brothers Shears. His song, Aaron, was considered by Moore to be one of the most perfect of modern songs. It was in this piece that he fixed upon Ireland the title of the Emerald Isle. When Aaron first rose from the dark swelling flood, God blessed the green island and saw it was good. The emerald of Europe, it sparkled and shone, in the ring of the world the most precious stone. Mary Tiggy, 1772-1810, whose maiden name was Blashford, was born the daughter of a clergyman in County Wicklow. She contracted an unhappy marriage with her cousin who represented Kilkenny in the Irish House of Commons. By all accounts, she was of great beauty and numerous accomplishments. She wrote many poems. Her best and best known is Psyche, or The Legend of Love, an adaptation of the story of Cupid and Psyche from the Golden Ass of Epileus. The meter she employed in this piece was the Spenserian stanza, which she handled with great power, freedom, and melody. Psyche, which first appeared in 1795, had a wonderful vogue, running rapidly through edition after edition. Among others to whom it appealed, and who were influenced by it, was Keats. Mrs. Tiggy's talent drew from Moore a delicate compliment in Tell Me the Witching Tale Again, and in The Grave of a Poetess, and I Stood Where the Life of Song Lay Low. Mrs. Hemans bewailed her untimely death. Edmund Malone, 1741-1813, the son of an Irish judge, was born in Dublin and studied at Trinity College. He was called to the Irish Bar in 1767, but coming into a fortune, he abandoned his profession and gave himself over to literary work. In 1790, he brought out an edition of Shakespeare, which was deservedly praised for its learning and research. His critical acumen led him to doubt the genuineness of Chatterton's Rowley poems, and he was one of the first to expose Ireland's Shakespearean forgeries in 1796. Among other services to literature, he wrote A Life of Sir Joshua Reynolds and edited Dryden. He also left a quantity of materials afterwards utilized for the Variorum Shakespeare by James Boswell the Younger in 1821. John O'Keefe, 1747-1833, a Dublin man, was at first an art student, but soon became an actor, and then developed into a playwright. His pen was most prolific. He published a collection of over fifty pieces in 1798. His plays are mostly comic operas or farces, and some of them had great success. Lingo, the schoolmaster in The Agreeable Surprise, is a very amusing character. The Positive Man, The Son-in-Law, Wild Oats, Love in a Camp, and The Poor Soldier are among his compositions. His songs are well known, such as I Am a Friar of Orders Gray, and there are few schoolboys who have not sooner or later made the acquaintance of his Amo Amas I Loved Alas. For the last fifty-two years of his life, O'Keefe was blind, an affliction which he bore with unfailing cheerfulness. In 1826 he was given a pension of 100 guineas a year from the King's Privy Purse. George Canning, 1770-1827, Prime Minister of England, properly belongs here, for although born in London, he was a member of an Irish family long settled at Garvaugh and County Derry. Entering Parliament on the side of Pitt in 1796, he was made Secretary of the Navy in 1804, and in 1812 Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. He became Prime Minister in 1827, but died within six months, leaving a record for scarcely surpassed eloquence. In addition to his speeches, he is known in literature for his contributions to the Anti-Jacobin, or Weekly Examiner, which ran its satirical and energetic career for eight months, November 1797 to July 1798. Some of the best things that appeared in this ultra-conservative organ were from Canning's pen. Few there are who have not laughed at his Loves of the Triangles, in which he caricatured Erasmus Darwin's Loves of the Plants, at the Needy Knife Grinder, 
or at the song of rogero in the rovers with its comic refrain of the university of gottingen like most of the great anglo-irishmen of his time canning favored catholic emancipation it is interesting to note that it was a letter of canning's that led to the formulation of the monroe doctrine henry grattan seventeen forty six to eighteen twenty the hero of grattan's parliament was born in dublin and studied at trinity college his history belongs to that of his country suffice it here to say that not only did he by great eloquence and real statesmanship secure a free parliament for ireland in seventeen eighty two but also that he fought energetically if unavailingly against the abolition of that parliament in eighteen hundred and that thenceforward he devoted his abilities to promoting the cause of catholic emancipation dying in london he was honored by being buried in westminster abbey in an age of great orators he stands out among the very foremost his speeches have become classics and are constantly quoted another brilliant irish orator as well as an eminent wit of this period was john philpot curran seventeen fifty to eighteen seventeen who born at newmarket county cork and educated at trinity college dublin achieved a wonderful success at the irish bar he defended with rare insight eloquence and patriotism those who were accused of complicity in the rebellion of seventeen ninety eight as a member of grattan's parliament he voiced the most liberal principles and though a protestant himself he worked hard in the catholic cause he held the great office of master of the rolls in ireland from eighteen o six to eighteen fourteen the memory of few irish orators wits or patriots is greener to-day than that of curran his daughter sarah whose fate is so inextricably blended with that of the ill-starred robert emmet has been rendered immortal by moore in his beautiful song she is far from the land where her young hero sleeps mary wollstonecraft godwin seventeen fifty nine to seventeen ninety seven the first advocate of the rights of women though born in london was of irish extraction into the details of her extraordinary and checkered career it is not possible or necessary here to enter her published works include thoughts on the education of daughters seventeen eighty seven answer to burke's reflections on the french revolution seventeen ninety one vindication of the rights of women seventeen ninety two and an unfinished historical and moral view of the french revolution volume one seventeen ninety four having in august seventeen ninety seven born to her husband william godwin a daughter who afterwards became shelley's second wife mary godwin died in the following month whatever her faults and they were perhaps not greater than her misfortunes she had something of the divine touch of genius and in a different environment might easily have left some great literary memento which the world would not willingly let die maria edgeworth seventeen sixty seven to eighteen forty nine though born at blackborton in england belonged to a family which had settled in different parts of ireland and finally at edgeworth's town county longford for nearly two hundred years she was the daughter of richard lovell edgeworth seventeen forty four to eighteen seventeen who was distinguished for his inventions for his eccentricity and for his varied matrimonial experiences and who himself figures in literature as the author of memoirs posthumously published in eighteen twenty and as the partner with his daughter in practical education seventeen ninety eight and in an essay on irish bulls eighteen o two maria had a busy literary career and was before the public for fifty-two years from seventeen ninety five to eighteen forty seven she wrote moral tales popular tales tales from fashionable life and harrington but she is now best remembered for her three masterpieces dealing with irish life and conditions namely castle rackrent eighteen hundred the absentee eighteen twelve and ormond eighteen seventeen by these works she inspired scott as he himself tells us to attempt for his own country something of the same kind with that which she had so fortunately achieved for ireland and in a later day she inspired turgenev to do similarly for russia she excels in wit and pathos and gives a true and vivid presentation of the times and conditions as she viewed them andrew cherry seventeen sixty three to eighteen twenty one born in limerick became an actor a theatrical manager and a playwright he wrote nine or ten plays several of which were moderately successful the one that is now remembered is the soldier's daughter some of his songs such as the bay of biscay tom moody the whipperin and especially the green little shamrock of ireland bid fair to be immortal other irish songwriters were thomas duffett living sixteen seventy six 
author of come all you pale lovers arthur dawson seventeen hundred to seventeen seventy five author of bumpers squire jones george ogle seventeen forty two to eighteen fourteen author of molly ashthor richard alfred milliken seventeen sixty seven to eighteen fifteen author of the grotesque groves of blarney edward lycett seventeen sixty three to eighteen eleven author of our ireland the gallant man who led the van of the irish volunteers and kate of garnavia george nugent reynolds seventeen seventy to eighteen o two author of kathleen o'more thomas dermody seventeen seventy five to eighteen o two author of the collection of poems and songs known as the harp of Erin, james orr seventeen seventy to eighteen sixteen author of the irishman henry barreton code died eighteen thirty author of the sprig of shillelagh charles wolfe seventeen ninety one to eighteen ninety three author of if i had thought thou couldst have died and of the burial of sir john moore and charles dawson shanley eighteen eleven to eighteen seventy five author of kitty of colrain theobald wolfe tone seventeen sixty three to seventeen ninety eight born in dublin educated at trinity college and called to the irish bar in seventeen eighty nine fills a large space in the history of his country from seventeen ninety to his death in seventeen ninety eight intrepid daring and resourceful he was one of the most dangerous of the enemies to english domination in ireland that arose at any time during the troubled relations between the two countries taken prisoner on board a french ship of the line bound for ireland on a mission of freedom he committed suicide in prison rather than submit to the ignominy of being hanged to which he had been condemned he sleeps his last sleep in Bowdenstown churchyard in that county of kildare to which he was connected by many ties his grave is still the mecca of many a pilgrimage and the cornerstone of a statue to his memory has been laid for some years on a commanding site in the city of his birth he is known in literature for his journals and his autobiography both containing sad but inspiring reading for the irishman of to-day here this rapid survey of irish writers of english must close to tell in any sort of appropriate detail the story of the english literature of ireland in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries would require a separate volume a volume which is now under way and will it is hoped be speedily forthcoming there is all the less need to attempt the agreeable task here because in other portions of this book much more than passing reference is made to the chief irish authors who in the last hundred and fifteen years have distinguished themselves and shed lustre on their country during that period irish poets playwrights novelists essayists historians biographers humorists critics and scholars have fully held their own both in the quantity and the quality of the work produced and have left an impression of power and personality of graceful style and vivifying imagination that in itself constitutes and must forever constitute one of the distinctive glories of ireland references irish literature ten volumes new york nineteen o four chambers's cyclopedia of english literature three volumes philadelphia and london nineteen o two to nineteen o four dictionary of national biography encyclopedia britannica cambridge history of english literature dalton history of ireland london nineteen ten lennox early printing in ireland washington nineteen o nine addison in the modern essay washington nineteen twelve Lessons in English Literature, 21st edition, Baltimore, 1913. Macaulay, Essays, History of England. Brown, A Reader's Guide to Irish Fiction, London, 1910. A Guide to Books on Ireland, Dublin, 1912. End of Section 38. End of the Glories of Ireland, edited by Joseph Dunn and P.J. Lennox.